Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke it in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Thank you, Richard. Well, good morning to our guest. On behalf of the pastor elder team, I just want to welcome you. I want to thank you for being here. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastor elders here, and it is my joy and privilege to bring the Word of God. Uh, if you are new to the church, just want to invite you to come back next Sunday. Our lead pastor, Tim Merwin, will be preaching. Love for you to hear him preach. Uh, but this morning, the title of this sermon is The Trappings of Riches and the Blessing in Suffering. I want you to soak that in for just a moment. The trappings of riches and the blessing in suffering. Before we dive into the sermon, I want to share a quote with you by Ravi Zacharias in his book, Recapture the Wonder. He says this about culture and wealth and riches. He says this, in a culture where the possibility of wealth and the acquisition of things is so defining of success, we end up pursuing things that even if we are successful, can never deliver what we envisioned they would. The things that define riches, such as fine cuisine, designer clothing, gold, and silver, will all be worthless one day. This is why, and I believe this is the main burden of our text this morning. In the last days, we are to beware of laying up treasures on earth, and in the last days, we are to be patient in suffering because the coming of the Lord is at hand. And we can be patient in suffering, 
not only because the coming of the Lord is at hand, but our Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's it. That's the main burden of this text. People are prone to pursue wealth and riches, but not all are wise enough to avoid the trappings of wealth and riches. This is why we need to be aware of the riches of this world. So that leads me to my first point. Point number one, beware of riches. Point number two, be patient in suffering. And point number three is be resolved in your faith. I don't know if we get to point number three, but point number one is beware of riches. Let's look at the indictment that James wrote about of the rich. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Note that James uses the same of address in chapter 4, verse 13, and chapter 5, verse 1. He says, come now, you who say. In our text this morning, he says, come now, you rich This indicates that chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, last week's sermon, is connected or related to verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. Both are connected by the same overall arching theme of the importance of allowing God and his values to shape our attitudes and our values toward business and wealth. Both last sermon and this sermon rebuke worldly arrogance and selfishness associated with wealth. But while chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, urges believers to repent, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5 condemns ungodly rich people, specifically rich landowners that are unbelievers, James condemns them and pronounces doom with no hint that they can repent. So church, we need to be reminded this letter was written to Jewish Christians. It was written for many congregations to read. And it is a very personal Letter. Note how many times he says the word in the form of you in the 12 verses. He says it 23 times. Therefore, church, this letter is written to us just as much as it was written to the Jewish Christians back in the day. In our passage James brought a rebuke in a scathing tone to the unbelieving rich and brought loving and encouraging instruction to those who are hurting, who are in need, and who are poor. 
This is how our text is structured, and that is how we're going to proceed in this sermon. Verse 1 again, look with me. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, it's important to note here that the Bible nowhere condemns wealth itself. You know that money is not the problem. We need money to support our families, right? It is the love of money that leads to all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. In fact, wealth is often thought of God's blessings. We see this in, Pro- in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, where it says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. However, back in the day of James, the rich, wicked landowners as a social class, well, some of them were guilty of exploiting and oppressing the poor. And it is no different today. Many of them lived as if there was no God who ruled over everything, and so it is today in the church. Now, I'm not aware of anybody who is rich, who is a landowner, who has hired laborers and harvesters. So culturally speaking, this doesn't translate one-to-one to our culture today. But the biblical principle of living in luxury and in self-indulgence to the neglect of God and neighbor translates very well one-to-one from their culture to our culture today. Meaning this principle is timeless. It applies to them then and it applies to us now. Cultures evolve over time, but biblical principles do not change because they are timeless The implication of of the original readers for the original readers of this epistle is the same implication for us today. We may not be rich landowners, but we are capable of living life in luxury, in self-indulgence to the neglect of God and neighbor. You see that, church. This is why I think the book of James is very relevant for us today. Now, I want to be clear about this. God the Father loves to give good gifts to us, to enjoy. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 where it says that it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so we are to enjoy everything that God has blessed us with, but not to the neglect of the giver, God himself, and not to the neglect of those who are in need around us. 
If you are an unbeliever who is living in luxury and in self-indulgence to, ne- to the neglect of God and a neighbor, then this stern warning, this scathing rebuke is for you. The bad news is that the day of judgment and slaughter awaits you. The good news is that God has you here today to hear his word, to to hear this stern rebuke so that you may repent and be saved from the day of slaughter. James says in verse one of chapter five, come now. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The unbelievers ought to weep and howl. Why? Because of the miseries that are coming upon them. To weep means to lament. It is to sob bitterly. In ancient times, to weep was used to describe the wailing for the dead. It was described to, to it, was, it was used to describe intense remorse. The term howl or wail is an expression of extreme grief. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. In scripture, it is found only in the Old Testament prophets this term howl or wail, and it's always in the context of judgment. Therefore, weep and howl is prophetic language used for those under the indictment by God when the day of the Lord comes, when the day of slaughter comes. The term miseries refers to the final judgment rather than the miseries of this life. For the unbeliever who does not repent, there will be miseries in the judgment day that will not compare to the miseries that you are experiencing in this life. Do you hear me, unbeliever? James continues with his indictment and says in verse 2, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Here, James gives us a list of indictments. The definition of riches differ depending on the culture and time, doesn't it? Back in the day of the first century, wealth apparently consisted of food, clothing, silver, and gold. We would define riches differently today, don't we? What was happening there was the rich landowners were hoarding their food by filling up their barns. They had so much food in their barns that they didn't have time to eat all of it. So whatever was left over rotted. They also stored up their Gucci, their DKNY, their Prada, their Stella McCartney designer clothings, but found them most 
but found them moth-eaten or ruined. Now, precious metals such as silver and gold, they do not rust. So we need to take this phrase figuratively, not literally. And so what's the point? What is James seeking to teach us this morning? Well, the point that James is making here is that all these precious metals of gold and silver are worthless as if they have corroded in light of judgment day. Do you see that church? For the unbeliever in the day of judgment, all of the hoarded food that have rotted, all of the corroded gold and silver, they're going to be the evidence that will go against them when the wrath of God will come and completely destroy them like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. The unbelieving rich were storing up material riches and on their last day here on earth, all of those riches became worthless. Trinity, that's what was up back in the day of James. So how do we think about this passage? How do we respond to this passage? How do we process this passage? Simon J. Kistemacher in his commentary of the book of James comments on this verse. He says this, Early, earthly possessions are like the tides of the sea. They come and go. Therefore, we ought not to base our destiny on the instability of earthly riches. Rather, we should receive every good and perfect gift out of God's hand, James 1.17, and then wisely and give and, and then wisely dispense the money God gives us. When we remember the needs of our fellow man and give generously, we reflect God's generosity towards us. That's how we are to think about the wealth and the riches of this world. Now, now today, if you happen to be financially blessed by God, then consider this or be reminded of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says to young Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. This is how we are to approach and think through the finances that God has given us to enjoy, but God has also given us to manage or to steward. Let's look at the evidences of the crime. Look with me at verses four through six. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. In those days, the payment for work performed was due at the very end of the day. Apparently, because the rich landowners were greedy, they kept back the wages from the poor laborers, from the poor harvesters of their fields. The term kept back can also be translated as defrauded. These rich landowners were defrauding the poor field laborers and harvesters to support their own lavish lifestyle. Instead of the joy of the harvest, the workers had to cry out against the rich landowners. James says, behold, the cries of the harvesters reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, what's the significance of the term Lord of hosts? In the original, it is the phrase kurio sabaoth. The NIV translates the Lord of hosts as the Lord Almighty, but this translation, well, it doesn't quite communicate the significance of this term, the, 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 the meaning and the thrust and the power of this term as it relates to our text. The King James Version or the, the NASB or and the NASB translation translates it as the Lord of Sabaoth. And so what is the significance of this phrase, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of Sabaoth? Why am I even spending that much time on this? Here's the thrust of that phrase. This is a Hebrew name of God, meaning the Lord of the host of heaven. This is a reference of God in the Old Testament as a warrior. This God who hears the cries of the poor is no other than the Lord of armies of heaven and earth. And this warrior, this almighty warrior, he is hostile towards the wicked and those who are oppressing the poor and the needy. And he will, this warrior, this Lord of hosts of heaven and earth, the armies will bring complete destruction to the rich unbelievers. He will bring complete death and destruction to the unbelieving rich who have defrauded the poor, who have lived in luxury and in self-indulgence to the neglect of God and neighbor. Verse five says this, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. While we were on my sabbatical last year in Michigan, we were able to go to a 4-H show. What I learned about the 4-H show is that the kids raised their own pigs. They fed them well. They bathed them in the movie Babe. We see that Babe was bathed with buttermilk and he appeared to be sleek and silky and shiny. 
these pigs were plump and very healthy looking. They were living a life of luxury. (laughs) They had become fat and happy. I noticed that during the show, the kids would spray the pigs when they got a little bit of mud on them and a little bit of poo on them. They would keep them brushed. I also learned that the kids would not allow themselves to name their pig and that they wouldn't even speak to their pig during the 4-H show before the judges. They would lead them out in this procession to be judged with a staff. I thought to myself, what an odd relationship. You know, my, my relationship with my dog Toshi, I talk to him. He loves me back by sitting next to me, and I hug him, and he, he cuddles with me. But these kids were pretty distant with their pigs. Later, I found out from one of the locals that the kids don't name them and they don't speak to them because the day after the 4-H show, they were all going to slaughter. So during the last day of the 4-H show, this barn that we were in, it was full of oinks and squeaks. And the very next day, it was filled with silence as all of them went to slaughter. All of them went to slaughter. Church, this is the picture that James wants us to see for the unbelieving wicked who continue to reject the good news of the gospel and the free grace of God that he extends through Jesus Christ. By defrauding the poor, the field laborers and the harvesters of their wages, they in a sense condemn them to death. Therefore, the Lord, the almighty God, the warrior, the Lord of the armies of heaven and earth will bring destruction and complete death to those who are wicked and unbelievers. In our text this morning, James was addressing rich landowners who oppressed the poor to support their luxurious lifestyles. But in a much broader implication of God's word, I believe he is also addressing anyone who is an unbeliever in this room, in this moment. If you have not believed in Jesus as your savior, if you have not made him Lord of your life, then the day of slaughter awaits you on the day of judgment. The phrase in the last days means the days before Christ returns. We are in the last days. And if you continue to reject the good news of the gospel and refuse to accept the free grace of salvation purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, then judgment awaits you, unbeliever. Slaughter awaits you, unbeliever. Complete death and destruction awaits you, unbeliever. 
I want to appeal to you today. Please repent of your sin. Accept Jesus as your Savior and the Lord of your life and the free grace of eternal life and forgiveness is yours and you will be spared on the day of judgment from slaughter. Repent and let the word of God reorient your life. If you are a genuine believer... but you have, have drifted away from the teachings of Scripture and now you are living in a life of luxury and in self-indulgence to the neglect of God and the neighbor, I want to appeal to you, repent. The good news is here, you have the opportunity to repent because Christ died for you. Let this stern warning and rebuke do its work. Repent. You see, all of your fine cuisines will rot. All of your designer clothing and your precious metals of silver and gold will all be worthless as corroded metals one day. Instead, be a better steward of your finances. Honor the Lord and seek to care for the poor. In verses 7 through 11, James transitions from rebuking the unbelieving rich landowners to exhorting and instructing the poor believers who are suffering. Point number two. Be patient in suffering. He says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Note the word, therefore. This, the, James uses this conjunctive adverb to help us see that it connects to the section prior to verses 1 through 6, or verses 7 through 11. You see, in light of the oppression and the oppressive conditions that the poor Jewish Christians were experiencing, this lead pastor now is seeking to care and comfort those who were suffering. And so we go from rebuke to encouragement. We go from a stern warning to instruction. We go from scathing tone to loving encouragement. Pastor James exhorted them to be patient and be steadfast. Then instructed them on how to be patient and steadfast. Patience is a virtue, virtue that only a few possess, but many pursue without success. The Bible uses the word patience in several ways. It means to not lose heart. If you are suffering this morning in your own context, James wants to encourage you to be patient or to not lose heart. 
It means to persevere and to be brave in enduring misfortunes and the troubles of this life. It means to be patient in, in bearing the offense and injuries of others. It means to be mild and to be slow to avenging. It means to be long in suffering, slow to anger, and slow to retaliate and punish. Trinity, for those of you who are suffering I want to ask you this. In what ways do you need to grow in your patience? Do you need to ask God for an extra measure of patience so that we or you do not lose heart? Do do you need to press into God and ask him for strength to, to brave and endure the misfortunes and the troubles of life brings? Do we need to ask God, do you need to ask God to give you, to help you grow in your patience as you seek to faithfully parent your rebellious children? Do you need to ask God to help you grow and give you strength for loving your cantankerous spouse? How long do we need to be patient? James says, until the day of return of Jesus Christ, until he comes back. You see, patience is a lifelong process until you take your last breath or until the Lord comes. That's how long James is calling us to be patient. Well, how long is that going to be? James says that the coming of the Lord is at hand. It means any day now. Oh, but what you say, Alex, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You're right, I don't know. Unless you told me. And I don't want to ever minimize the suffering that you're going through. I want to confirm and affirm you that your pain is real. But I also want to tell you the truth in love. If you are a Christian, then God knows what you're going through and what you're dealing with right at this very moment. And if you are crying out to him, the Lord of the host of heaven hears you with his ears. He has not left you alone. He has given himself to you in the form of the Holy Spirit, the the person and work of the the Holy Spirit. And it is through the Holy Spirit where he can give you wisdom and knowledge so that you remain steadfast in your current suffering and grief. It is through the Holy Spirit where he can give you counsel if you just don't know what to do. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit where he will comfort you in your suffering. And when the Lord seems distant, it is the Holy Spirit through his power who convicts you and reminds you of who your God is. Your God is faithful, Trinity. He's near to the brokenhearted. He hears the cry of the poor and the needy. And he's a good father and he delights in providing for what we need. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. James continues, see how the farmer awaits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Palestine was a rainy agriculture. Well, let me take that back. Palestine had two rainy seasons and it, it is an agricultural nation. They received rain in October through November, and then they received rain again in, in uh, April through May of each year. So the farmers had to prepare the land, they had to sow the seed, and they had to wait for the rains to come, and then the harvest. See how James is walking the people of God through their own context. This is how you wait. Being that Palestine was an agricultural um, terrain, the Jewish Christians knew exactly what he was talking about. James says to be patient like this. He says, be faithful in your responsibilities as a farmer. Till the land, sow your seed, and then wait for the rain. You can't make the rain come. It will come in its due season. You can't make the crops grow. It will grow in its own timing. And you can't rush the harvest because God has predetermined the timing in and through nature. That's how we are to wait. We are to wait patiently, but be responsible, be faithful in what God has called us to do. What else do we do while we wait? Well, we don't wait passively. Because suffering can make us weary. Suffering can make us weak. Suffering can lead us to doubt the goodness of God. Suffering and, and the difficult circumstances can lead us to lose heart. This is why James exhorts, exhorted them. And this is why James, the book of James, exhorts us today to establish our hearts. What does that mean? What does that look like in my life? I'm glad you asked. What does it mean to establish your hearts in the midst of patience and suffering? It means to, to stable our hearts because our hearts are prone to wander from our faith in God. It means to place our hearts firmly, to fix our hearts on the promises that Jesus will return. It means to strengthen or to render constant our heart. Why should we establish our hearts? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Because the coming of the Lord is approaching. Because he will return. We can wait patiently with confidence. Meanwhile, what else should we do while we wait patiently? while we strengthen and establish our hearts. Well, James says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do you sense the imminence of Christ's return? Church, we should not grumble while we wait. 
We should not grumble against each other. You see, when we are suffering, we're prone to lash out at others, aren't we? And oftentimes, the ones we lash out at are our loved ones. We are tempted to complain to others. We are tempted to speak harshly to others. So why should we not grumble against each other while we wait patiently as we establish our hearts? Well, grumbling against each other leads to sin. And as Christians, as believers, the good news of the gospel is that we will not have to experience the judgment on judgment day against us because of our sin. Why? Because Jesus took on the punishment that our judgment deserves. But for the unbeliever who continues to reject the free offer of saving grace, they will face judgment on the day of slaughter. And they will be found guilty. Every single one will go to slaughter. This is why if you are an unbeliever, I just want to call you to repentance and accept Jesus as your Savior and the Lord of your life and you will be spared in the day of slaughter. Jesus has made a way for you to be spared at the bloody cross. As believers, why should we not grumble against each other? Well, James says, so that we will not be judged. When we grumble, we end up saying harsh words to each other. Harsh words can do great damage. You heard that in chapter 4. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. I tell you, in the day of judgment, people will give, or some other translations, every man will give an account for every careless word they speak. So how are we supposed to use our words? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. Why shouldn't we not grumble against each other? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Because the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, James points us to examples in the Old Testament. He says this in verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, or he says, look, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate. Other translation says, the Lord is full of compassion and, and mercy. So after James took the first examples of being patient from nature, now he takes another set of examples from Holy Scripture itself. The Old Testament prophets suffered not because they did wrong, but because they spoke up in the name of the Lord. 
For instance, Elijah endured persecution from King Ahab. Jeremiah suffered hardship from the kings of Judah. Daniel endured the, the lion's den because, he, because of his faith in God. But James here dials in to one specific example. He points us to Job. Job was a great example of a man who was patient. He did what was right, but he still suffered. Job was not a perfect man, but he showed a great deal of patience. Now, though Job wrestled with questions and bitterness, he ultimately persevered in trusting the Lord through all of his unimaginable suffering. So what makes Job stand out from the rest? It was his steadfastness. James says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, it's true that at the end of Job's suffering, God blessed Job with more than twice than what he had. He was blessed. But... I believe the true blessing was found in the persevering faith he had that triumphed in the end. That's the true blessing. Anybody who can go through horrendous suffering and, and trials like Job did and come out in the end praising God and loving God, I say that person is truly blessed. You see, church, material blessings from God are great, but they will all become worthless one day. All of the designer clothes that we buy and store up in our closets will either be moth-eaten or ruined. All of the silver and the gold and all the possessions, the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis in the world will all be worthless one day when Jesus returns. But those who persevere and endure to the end Remain steadfast. Why? Because of God himself. And they will be truly blessed because their prize, their reward, their inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. You see, Jesus didn't come to this earth and humbled himself to be nothing, to take on the form of a slave, a servant, so that we can be materially rich. No, he humbled himself and, and made himself nothing. He gave up all the glories of heaven so that we can be rich in him. Trinity, we can remain steadfast and patient in the midst of suffering and pain. Why? Because our Lord is compassionate and merciful. Other translations would say he is full of compassion and he is full of mercy. Psalm 103 Verse 8 says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You see, he's not only compassionate, but he is full of compassion. 
and his compassion drove him to reach out to us in love and mercy. That's how we can remain steadfast. That's how we can be patient in the midst of trials and tribulations because Jesus is compassionate and he's reaching out to us with his love and mercy. Church, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Remain steadfast, Trinity Community Church. Though suffering may last for a little while, he will come again and make right the wrong. He will redeem all that is lost. He will make new the old. He will restore all that has been broken. He will exchange our old bodies, our old broken bodies with new glorious ones. Trinity, Jesus is our only hope for patience and suffering and his coming is at hand. Therefore, church, let us establish our hearts. Let us strengthen our hearts. Let us stand firm in our faith. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Would you stand with me? We, we won't preach the, the second, the third point. Let me pray and then we'll close. Father, we just want to thank you that your word seeks to minister to us both not only in a stern rebuke for unbelievers, but a stern rebuke and correction for those believers, genuine believers who have strayed from your teaching and have drifted into a life of luxury self-indulgence to the neglect of who you are and to those who are others who are in need. We thank you that you give us patience through the power of your Holy Spirit that lives within us. We praise you. Help us, O Lord. Grant us a greater measure of patience. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now,